If you're a business owner or senior manager, you probably had more than enough about all the wonderful opportunities awaiting you in the era of digitalization. Whether it is big data, cloud, data science, or whatever buzzword is currently trendy. If you would like to hear someone dissecting these claims and showing you what it actually takes to improve business processes, you're in the right place. This is Between Data and Risk, where we discuss real-life examples of what works and what doesn't in the world of business operations. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and with me is my co-host, Artur Guja, Cognition Shared Solutions Chief Risk and Strategy Officer. Hello. Welcome to the 11th episode of Between Data and Risk. Today, we will be talking about the difference between education and knowledge transfer. We are excited to have with us today our guest, Dr. Susan Taffer. University professor, an American business and social entrepreneur, a transition strategist, as well as a president of innovative EdTech College for World Connection and the principal founder of World Connections Foundation, who agreed to share some of her experiences with us. Hello, Susan. Greetings. Hello, gentlemen. Arthur, Marion, nice to see you. We are really honored that you accepted our invitation to join us and talk to our audience about uh, yeah, education, knowledge, and how to become a smarter person, better equipped to deal with challenges of today's world. So my first question, as I mentioned in the intro, mm -hmm. is uh, do you perceive a difference between education and knowledge transfer? To be honest, we had a little um, behind-the-scenes discussion with Arthur, and we uh, differ a little in our perception of, of this topic. So how, how would you uh, describe education in the, in the context especially of, of, of knowledge transfer required to, to, to keep the companies running? Mm, certainly, it's a great question. First of all, I think that they're very closely related, and you, you almost cannot have one without the other, but they do differ. And um, how they differ depends on how you apply what you know. And, uh, you know, knowledge transfer in and of itself is a very simple process of gaining information and um, either applying it or not. But is it synthesized? Because uh, when we um, receive a lot of knowledge, a lot of data, a lot of information all at once, what does it mean? How do we apply that? That's the gift of the process of education, not that education as it's formally presented is the answer to all things. It's not. But what you learn in the process of education and in higher education, advanced education, is how to approach synthesizing information to relate it to a specific problem. And so that's the skill that you develop. It's not necessarily a, a secret, but it's an exercise. And it's really... Um, working the muscle of the brain in how to take all that information in, make it meaningful to the problem at hand, because it just depends on the lens that we approach the problem through. Like there are many theories to approach a simple problem, many different ways to look at a specific issue. I always use the example of um, if you're looking at a tree and you're standing around a tree relatively circular, how many degrees of whole perceptions could that be from each individual? Well, if we look at math, it's 360. And additionally, if you're inside the tree trunk looking around, there's another 360 degrees. So that's 120 degrees of perception looking at a single problem. So how do you synthesize all that you have learned? It, it, it's not an easy task. It takes uh, working the muscle of the brain is what I call it. So I hope that answered your question. And, a little bit more detail. Do I have a preference of one over the other? I don't think I really do, because again, you can't have one without the other. Uh, it's it's interesting because we we spoke uh, a couple episodes ago to Dr. Nick Swain, who is the president of North Idaho College, mm -hmm. and uh, we we spoke to him about uh, his approach and and some of the programs that he's running, and uh, he mentioned that his uh, his students are seen as as very valuable and and are being specifically asked for because they instead of just having the the, the kind of the facts. They know how mm -hmm. to apply them. They have the, the, the practical experience. So uh, uh, 
you know, for 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 me personally, the it it all starts with giving the in, the the data, the, mm. the information, obviously. But uh, as you say, the the, the synthesis is uh, you know putting it together, putting it in, in, into into practice, and having that behind your belt is is probably the key. But how do you actually achieve this? Because I've I've trained uh, you know uh, quite quite a few people in in business situations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can you can bring the, the the horse to water, but you just cannot make it drink. Uh, how do you achieve that 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 uh, effect? Well, I think uh, first of all, part of it is intuitive, um, and I can't deny that that that's a a gift of good teaching is uh, that sensibility of being intuitive to be able to see where a person is coming from, and where they're really creating their own blocks. And that's a lot of what it is, is they're resistant to whatever it is you're um, informing them on or helping them see. And a lot of it is the, the, the mind that thinks it knows. And um, that is a specific art is to be able to talk to someone and help them understand that maybe they don't have that answer. And maybe the answer is organic. It, it's something that evolves out of the process of thinking and applying yourself to that particular situation. And so that's really um, something that um, takes practice and time when you're training people, uh, how to weed that out. And uh, there are specific exercises you can work with and uh, uh, humor is a great way to uh, <laughs> introduce the thought of, you know, um, great minds and talk about the great minds in history. They, they didn't have all the answers and they never approached a problem thinking they had the answer. They approached the problem as, what exactly could the answers be? And how many ways do I need to look at this to sift that out? And that takes uh, more of a personal development piece than anything to do with, quote unquote, a knowledge absorption. It's, it's dealing with, for lack of a better word, the ego of an individual to allow that to be honored, but move it aside and say, hey, let's set this aside. Let's really look at this in a different way. And um, I use uh, videos. I have a great video that talks about uh, 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 um, being humble with your intellect and uh, allowing your intellect to um, be wrong. And it's a great gift that you can give yourself. And so those kinds of tools sort of set the stage for the capacity for individuals to open up and, and really um, expand their own their own mind or their own approach. This is really interesting. You touch upon so many things that we spoke previously. Uh, one thing that uh, Dr. Swain was very adamant on is to allow people to fail as, mm -hmm. uh, is, as a way of uh, mm, helping them learn and grow in, in learning. And mm -hmm his exact words that his people were really um, perceived as the ones who know how to troubleshoot, how to effectively get to the solution. So it was uh, literally, that's what he said about uh, the value of, of, of you know, graduates that he is uh, letting out to the world. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned is, is ego. Uh, we also we we had a whole whole episode where we were discussing the role of ego in uh, in development in business environment and sh should should or should not it be banned? Uh, I'm really interested. How do you understand this process of setting? Because I I, I have a this this saying that I am so arrogant that I have no problem with others being great and you know let me. Help, help me grow and uh, I don't need to prove anything any, anymore. I just want to, to, to learn and become even, uh, even awesomer, even mm -hmm. if <laughs> such word doesn't exist. Uh, so what's your, what's, what's your take on ego? You, you touched on the topic, but we really, you know, hitly discussed. We disagreed on it uh, <laughs> quite heavily. <laughs> well, that's expected, I'm sure. Um, I love your question, Marion. And um, to me, uh, I could go so many directions with the answer to this question. I feel that the ego is a very valuable part of who we are. The ego is um, uh, something we need to have a relationship with. And um, 
as you mentioned, uh, you said arrogance. Well, we think in often uh, terms of arrogant being a negative connotation. And I look at the root of the word arrogant, and it means to take for one's own. And um, that's what the ego is about, um, to really take the world around it and uh, bring it into being and make meaning to that individual about how to approach life and how to be best at life and whatever the drivers are. Uh, so I always honor the ego. It has its place, but I believe it needs to be integrated into the whole person and um, not the first voice that we hear. So um, there's a lot of practices out there which want to diminish the ego, make it disappear, or it's a bad thing. And um, I simply don't agree. It's a very valuable piece of who we are and to know where it comes from and to know when it's speaking. That's the trick. To know when the ego is speaking is is important. And sometimes that ego speaking is valuable <laughs> because our ego <laughs> will say, I'm not going to be defeated at this. Though I may fail many times, I won't be defeated. And so that's the difference. It's the persistence. And um, I, I share with my learners in the doctoral program that it's the passion that will get them through this five years of deep diving into a research topic. It's the passion that will get them through, but the passion is neither knowledge nor truth. And so the passion comes with the ego. The ego marries with the passion that drives mm -hmm. us. And that's to be set aside. Knowledge and truth are discovered. And that's the journey that they're on. And to be willing to, to set that uh, passion as the driver aside to learn the truth or to learn a truth. So um, that's the essence of research, I, I feel. So I, I hope I've uh, responded to the concept of ego in a succinct way <laughs> because we could spend hours and hours on that topic, I think. So the, the, the other the topic that you already, already mm. mentioned and we disagreed just recently in our last episode um, is related to connecting something that in, in domain-driven uh, in uh, design thinking is described in two separate steps, which I consider a bit strange and Arthur is a big fan of, is uh, disconnecting understanding from empathizing or observing. And uh, I wonder what's your, in my personal opinion, disconnecting these two is, is it's a bit misleading. It should be one step of understanding where we connect both intellectual preparation and intellectual absorbing knowledge about the problem with uh, perception, deep perception of, because we are talking about understanding problems. So, mm -hmm. so uh, the perception of problems and, and, and empathizing with, with, uh, mm, with, with emotional or, 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 or uh, I don't know, not so purely intellectual part of the problem. It should be, in my opinion, it, it's a process of learning, learning about the, the problem. It's, th these two things are not identical, but they shouldn't be sequential, they should be parallel. But of course, feel free to, 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 to correct me. That's just my take on things. So how do you perceive this? mind and and emotions or, or, or you know, facts and emotions connected to the problem and learning mm -hmm. about the problem. How do you connect this or disconnect? Well, or disconnect, sure. Uh, well, we approach it differently when we're speaking to um, a personal problem and a problem of analytics that's outside in the world at large, I think. Um, the, the best leaders blend the two. They bring their authentic self from their personal life into the world of work or the world of problems where we're solving and looking for solutions. So um, in research, we speak a lot about um, objectivism, uh, being objective, being um, clean with our observations without imparting our own biases. Well, first of all, we all have biases. I mean, everybody likes their coffee just a little bit different in the morning or maybe at night, or their tea, <laughs> or whatever. So if you just take that simple application, you know, it's a bias. 
you know, preference. So no matter how we try to be fully, completely objective, we can't be. So what I like to help my, um, my learners and my uh, clients understand is how to bring the best of ourselves to the problem. And yes, we understand when we're looking at it through a personal observation as opposed to a completely objective observation. And I don't think that um, one needs to be superior over the other because we've lived life. We have wisdom. We have experiences. We have our, our own individual knowledge through um, what we've studied. Uh, that's why we have different people come from different disciplines to lead an organization. Not all MBAs have it all together, right? So we need to <laughs> shake that up a little bit, bring a philosopher <laughs> in there. Um, one of the things that I, I always want to share with people is that um, modern education has sort of beat out the sensibility of being creative. And uh, to our point that we just discussed earlier, that the inability to allow ourselves to fail, we're so busy being right all the time that we don't exercise that fun, creative sense of like coloring outside the lines, so to speak. And I remember how mortified I was when my, my teacher in the second grade said, well, you know, Cindy did it better because she stayed within the lines. I loved my colors. <laughs> they were exciting. They were vibrant. They were deep. They were all over the page. So that being said, I remember I was being crushed by that if I remember that feeling. So um, not to say that um, creativity doesn't have a place in pure analytics because it does. Actually, if you look at Einstein's work, how creative could you be, right? It's, it's, it's a marriage of the two because the intellect runs on a neural, neurological uh, energy and, and our heart, our emotions that connect to who we are as individual and give us own individual meaning. It has its own rhythm. And yes, they are parallel. So how can you not consider the application of an individual's um, emotive self onto a certain problem, but to be able to have the um, discernment? And to knowing when is it coming from that intuitive self or that emotion that applies to it? And when is it coming from the pure analytics? Because there's a place for both. And in design, in design thinking, uh, you know, we had a, a, a huge discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of design thinking. Marian, Marian doesn't seem to be. <laughs> and, uh, but f for me, for me, it follows, follows the, the kind of logical steps of what we do with our clients. So, we we don't go to the to the clients first to observe what they do and then start finding out what what it all means but we first prepare ourselves like like we did for for this interview we first researched uh, you know a, a lot of topics about education about uh, uh, about knowledge transfer and then we came to observe so for me that the, the sequence there even though there is there's a big overlap the, the intellectual preparation does enable you to observe in a meaningful way. Uh, and uh, I think there is, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily end, the understanding doesn't end when you start observing. But uh, I, I really like the, the way you, you presented that, you know, there, there are biases and mm -hmm. the, the observing stage of design thinking is specifically there to break down those biases and and find out where your understanding has introduced them mm -hmm. so that when you observe your, your your client or the person who has a particular problem you're trying to solve how they perceive it what they're actually doing so that you you can you can filter them no, out. I, I only meant that uh it doesn't mean that when you start observing your understanding phase is done observing is an element of understanding disconnecting these two and putting them one after another is a mistake you need to mm. do some intellectual preparatory <laughs> work, then you do observing and you deepen your understanding. It's not like you're done with your understanding. As I told you, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the, the approach of design thinking. What I'm really discussing is the verbiage and some dangerous, mm, mm, how do you say, borders that it introduces in the description, which may lead to, 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 to misconceptions. Uh, the observation and um, uh, uh, and and this uh, putting empathy on it for me is an integral part. Yes, we do very very similarly. What I'm what I'm opposing is this this sharp division and putting it like one step after another. Understanding, 
observation. No, your observation is just as element of, but it's not the topic of this podcast. We had this one previously. <laughs> we can we can have another one where where we disagree even more. But uh, uh, Susan, you mentioned something something very interesting. You 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 mentioned uh, your your kind of uh, educational work with your with your students uh, mm -hmm. um, in in academic setting, and you also mentioned uh, your your clients, your business business setting. Mm -hmm. How do you? How do you see any differences between the way uh, the, uh, people are educated in academic settings versus the business? Because for me, uh, the, you know, business is always very, very result oriented. And, uh, you know, you, as, you, as you said, you, you mentioned this, this once already, you, 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 there's pressure on being always right. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in HSBC, in my my last uh, in my last job, we actually had uh, this, this, this whole kind of uh, Innova innovation courses about allowing yourself to be wrong, mm -hmm. uh, uh, allowing yourself to explore. But I think a lot of it was was kind of lip service and trying to introduce some concepts which then didn't translate into into actual everyday business practice. So how 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 do you see the differences and how how would you improve it? Arthur, you're very right because uh, when you're dealing in business and finding solutions, there's always a time constraint, right? I mean, there's always uh, the pressure of um, time is money <laughs> and it's about, <laughs> you know, uh, finding solutions that help to resolve issues that prevent you from, you know, making the right amount of money that everyone's happy with <laughs> or uh, getting a new product on board or whatever the case may be. So um, it's, it's a bit impossible to play in the sandbox forever right? When you're speaking in business concepts. But um, to your question, how does education differ from the business environment? And depends on the institution. So uh, there are institutions that provide um, really strong, uh, what I would say, uh, practitioner degrees and pathways where the businesses in the community or in the environment that they're related with contribute highly to the curriculum. And uh, that's an important factor. We miss that sometimes in our traditional education system, especially in the United States, where we're driving education to feed education and uh, to create academics. And academics uh, is a business, uh, whether we <laughs> like it or not. And the business of being an academic is, um, for some, mostly those at the very, very top, it's profitable. So how do we drive that business? Sometimes not to the best of our constituents and uh, those who we would like to serve, and that's uh, the businesses and the, and, and the individual contributors and entrepreneurs, you might say. So um, those institutions that know how to partner well with their communities and uh, their stakeholders, uh, they do a really good job of um, managing the knowledge base, the exercise of learning and how to apply that in real business situations. So um, I take advantage of my university that I teach uh, doctorate programs in. And um, yes, I fit the box. It's required, but I go way beyond that box. And uh, students appreciate that. They really gravitate um, I've had situations where I've had a small group and um, it got larger and larger and, and suddenly I realized that there was no one else in any other classroom but mine because we had a really great topic going and it was around math, believe it or not. <laughs> now, they were younger, uh, you know, early 20s, but nonetheless, it's um, making learning fun and uh, truly applicable. And um, I'm all for the, the marriage of business and education um, business is sort of a broad term, but I hope you understand my meaning, um, mm -hmm. where constituents and stakeholders have a voice and can uh, contribute to how that educational pathway moves. Because I get doctoral learners that uh, they're not great academics when I first get them, <laughs> but they are brilliant in their industry. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I will have a VP of um, um, nonprofit healthcare system. And uh, brilliant, brilliant in this industry, um, writes differently than an academic dissertation. So, you know, has to learn a new skill. Uh, is he less brilliant? Absolutely not. It's just learning that skill of getting that research topic formulated so it gets through the academic pipeline 
and then he becomes, you know, in and among that circle that puts him into the top C-suite category. So. I have a question uh, which relates to that, like if, you know, from your experience in both worlds, like mm -hmm. what is, we try to be practical and we want to give our, our audience some tips and tricks, so to speak. One good mm, lesson about learning uh, from academia, which you would love to see in most of the enterprises that you that you talk to. Uh, so you know, one habit, I don't know, one methodology framework or whatever it is. Like, what is the biggest lesson that you think that business world could take from the educational wo world to to work better to 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 you know, in any sense, we, you, you, you can start with explaining what, except maybe more profitable, uh, what does it mean to work better? It's also my, my, my personal interest, like what, what value can business have outside profit? But mm -hmm. the one thing that, that, that you think should be transferred, knowledge transfer from you know, academia mm -hmm. to business. Well, absolutely. I think the one thing that, um, uh, is the most beneficial for individuals that go through the process of advanced learning. Um, there are many people that do well in show me how to get my A. I take the course, I take the class, I know what the rubric is, I know how to get my A. You know, very highly motivated people, right? So uh, the shift moves out of that environment into the educational world where you become self-motivated and you're self-directed with the guidance of a mentor, a chair, a committee. And that is sometimes a huge learning curve for people to understand and grasp because there's no longer this formula for getting the A. There's this whole free world of exploration. And how do I direct myself to achieve that level, high level of expectation from myself and from those around me who are mentoring through the process? So, um, what I'm getting at is a, a small bit of uh, small phrase that is being self-motivated and self-directed. And that is something that if we transfer to the business world in a leadership capacity, it's no longer about the technicalities of how to get the A or how to achieve a certain level of uh, uh, business uh, success, but how do we grow better as a person, as an individual, and not just smarter, but grow better? And how do we apply ourselves and become more relatable to that culture of business and those people around us? Because in the end of the day, you know, that's what it's all about, right? It's it's interesting uh, because uh, we we work uh, sometimes with with startups with or with small companies and uh, we we find that the, the problem is sometimes uh, kind of almost the reverse uh, that uh, you have a founding team small founding team it can be one person it can be two or three uh, that is highly motivated they are mm -hmm. experts in their field. They have the, the, they have the big idea that they want to uh, implement to improve the world, uh, and and they fare great until the point where they start taking on more more people, and mm -hmm. they they start hiring and then they they, they find themselves facing a the problem because uh, suddenly they they can't hire people as intelligent uh, or or as knowledgeable as themselves. They have to they have to you know dip into the workforce and find someone mm -hmm. who will actually be not not the not the thinker not the strategist but the doer they they need someone for their process but they 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 find it very hard very often to to transfer that knowledge uh even on on the simplest level which leads to the cycle of frustration okay you can't do it and i will do it myself then mm -hmm. uh, you know they do them they do it themselves which which leaves the person frustrated because they were they they, they weren't given the, the the kind of the chance to 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 learn and and very often it leads to to downright failure of the whole enterprise <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, it's the, 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 also the question is maybe not not how to make people better learners but how to make these these founders better educated <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that. And it's, and it's so true. I've experienced it. it. You know, I teach all the time, but there, I feel that frustration when people around me aren't as motivated as I am. They don't have a little <laughs> level of passion. And it's like, get off the dime, right? Let's move. Let's get it done. You know, highly driven people have a hard time understanding people that are not driven, you know? <laughs> so when you, when you, you know, you're a, you're a founder, how, how have you uh, kind of created the organization uh, such that you, 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 you create the environment for people to learn and, and also to, 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 to grow such how that do they pass, do become. How do, how do you pass the passion? for learning, mm -hmm. for, for growing. This is, this is I think, the, the Arthur's question. It's like, uh, you have the sure. passion and you just want things to, 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 to get better and better. And there comes someone who says, okay, nine to five, time stop. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, so true. And there's a movement now called um, uh, Quietly Quitting. Have you heard about that? Yes. yes it's yes. just like, whoa, what's that about? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally understand. Um, the frustration of that. And um, uh, there are two parts that I'd like to mention. Uh, one is um, I had to work on myself. And one of the skills that I um, learned, and I'm sorry, I can't think of the individual's name, but um, I will in a minute. <laughs> but um, it's procrastination on purpose. And being a high driver, I tend not to procrastinate a lot um, as my nature. But I've learned that if I procrastinate on purpose and just take a step back and evaluate time, effort, and what I get out of it. So if I'm in that situation where I just soon do it myself, it gets done quicker. You know, how much time does it take me to do that? Or how much time does it take me to spend with that person to see what truly motivates them, what inspires them, find out what they feel they can contribute to their role and then help them expand that. It takes more time, but in the end, what have I created? So that's the gift of procrastinating on purpose. So I'm too busy driving to notice what is needed by the people around me as far as their own level of self-confidence and self-efficacy in their role and their appreciation, they're being appreciated. Are they being appreciated and spending that time with them? You find that if you give them time and a little bit of yourself, even though it took, you know, an hour instead of 10 minutes, like <laughs> normally it would for you, um, that means so much more for that individual. And then you create a culture. So um, that is something I've learned through the hard way. Because if I'm a driver, I drive people around me, they should get it done, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it looks, Marianne, like I will have to take a step back and find out what really motivates you. And, uh, you know, we'll have to have a discussion afterwards. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, 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 Susan, we also, uh, I, I remember that in, in uh, the previous discussions uh, that we, we, we had with you, you mentioned uh, new technologies and how you're, you're pioneering uh, meta mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, education is, is, it has a big opportunity to use those, 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 those modern technologies. Uh, can you kind of uh, shed light on this and, and uh, you know, how, you, how you see the, the role of, of modern technologies in educating people? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, there's a resistance in traditional education, especially in the K through 12 classroom, uh, for implementing uh, technology on a daily basis. Uh, kids have their cell phones, get rid of your cell phones for not doing cell phones. I say use the technology, put that to good use because they're already getting uh, excited about whatever it is, social media, whatever they're on. So turn it around, implement the tool in their hand into the classroom, understand it and implement it for a learning opportunity. So then you, you, you create this atmosphere of friendliness. Now that's in the early stages. We're way beyond that. Um, five and a half years ago, um, after having um, done some travel around the world to see, I, I actually taught in other countries just to learn how education was done in other countries, what the world needs as far as education advancement and how we can do it better and uh, how I could be a better instructor. I learned so much. I came back with this vision and I had no idea that it took a pandemic to accelerate it. And <laughs> um, 
now it's it's beyond introductory stages. We already have early adapters. We have people that are moving into um, the world of uh, technology delivery in ways and fashions that have been beyond our imagination. So uh, I'm engaged locally with uh, what we call micro-schooling. And um, there's a lot of um, focus on the failure of our formal educational environment in the K through 12 environment uh, as demonstrated during the pandemic. You know, everyone was at a loss. Um, many people were at a loss, but those who had used technology consistently and had seen the growth from the early, you know, higher education environments that were strictly online to the marriage, to the hybrid, to, you know, to the universities that are now trying to catch up really quickly in uh, <laughs> the world of technology and education delivery. So uh, those of us who had that skill were on board really quickly to help people move up the ladder. But what we're doing now is we're um, creating an environment where um, all this technology and all the access that we have to internet and all this knowledge, there's really no filter. There's a lot of white noise. There's a lot of advertisement. There's a lot of junk that unless you're really keen, you know, you can be misinformed, all of the things that we can imagine. So we've developed a platform to where we work in um, what we call topic pods. And we've created this beautiful environment that is eco-friendly to all learners without the white noise. And uh, then we make that accessible to educators. And so this is called... Um, um, a developing process and micro schools are part of this creative Harvard introduced the concept, but it's where parents, educators get together and create their own educational ecosystem, their own environment. And so the micro schooling concept is now platforming on, um, I've partnered with an organization called Jotical and uh, we create learning pods called Jots. So if you're a Trekkie or a Star Wars fan, you can look back into some of the filming and how um, um, when we think of Dr. Spock's school as, in his elementary school, what did that look like? And there's some film um, um, B-roll that I use when I introduce the concept. So if you have access to nothing but pure knowledge, on different topics, you can begin to see the relationship between the different areas and disciplines. For instance, if we're working on a bio um, uh, uh, biotechnology issue <laughs> and how that relates to um, social policy, right away you see the connection because you're in a pure learning environment. I don't want to over-express it, but Go ahead. Does it does it uh, kind of uh, blur the, the the boundaries between different topics uh, and and merge it into a, a more a coherent whole? Because uh, this is this is something that I've I've seen in in, in business kind of uh, environment as well, and uh, mm -hmm. I, it looked in, really interesting. Where uh, you know I had uh, I I had some uh, uh, some of the the team members in in, in my team uh, in one of the previous jobs where they they wanted to to solve a problem, so they th mm -hmm. thought, okay, I need to go to for a programming course, I need to go for a risk management course, I need mm -hmm. to go for, this. and if they were given a, a, a curriculum which was directed not at individual disciplines where they they really Correct. need you know ten percent from each one, but something that is more 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 you know reality and life oriented, then they 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 would fare much better and probably use use their time much more. So it it looks like it's. Do I understand the concept uh, correctly? Arthur, you're exactly right. That's at the higher level. I mean, they're starting that in the K through twelve system, creating this um, ecosystem of education. That applies to to that, not for the uh, driving for the industry of education, but driving for the problem at hand, <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> and so when you translate that to, you know, businesses and higher education, what does that look like? And so uh, that's what we're creating. We're one of the few people that have come to the table with these concepts and are, are diving in excitedly about how to then... Uh, Excel this into the metaverse universe, metaverse universe, <laughs> university <laughs> of metaverse, which will evolve eventually. Right now, it's at its elemental stages, and uh, you know, there's lots of gamification in that world, and they want now to um, invite educators that are early adapters to this concept and how education can be really uh, focused. Um, and 
who drives that education. It's not a system that defines an educational pathway. It's the individual and the entrepreneur educators who are now specialists in areas that can contribute and teach what they love to teach and not what they have to teach to satisfy a system. So that's part of the mm-hmm. driver too. So it's twofold. So it's the educators as well as the individual learning um, community that's driving it. I, I know it's been discussed in many places many times, but what are the, because you put now uh, a strong, um, strong border between what people want to teach and what they have to teach uh, mm-hmm. because of the education system. Like, What's the biggest pitfall of uh, current system? I've heard that it's it it was designed to train workers in factories and mm. all this system of sitting down in the with hands on the table for six hours is actually preparing you to work on the on the shop floor uh, yeah. of the of the factory. Uh, is it is it the biggest let's say problem with with the current education system or is there something else? Well, it's certainly been what's made um, countries great. Uh, America, United States of America is great because partly, in part, because of their education system. Yes, it was a response to the Industrial Revolution. And yes, the coursework and the directions were defined accordingly, expanded accordingly, and and there were benefits from that. And it certainly uh, prepared individuals for various aspects of the Industrial Revolution. It's a total different picture now. So are we still trying to educate in the same way? It's a, it's, a, it's a revolution now. You know, it's an information revolution. It's an evolution of revolution. So it's, uh, you know, how do we need to approach it much differently? And it's very hard to swing a huge infrastructure. Uh, there's a lot of money behind huge universities and, and our academic system, and it has a value, and our accreditation systems, they've had a value. How do they adapt and switch to the new uh, concepts of learning? And it's going to be some hard lessons for some organizations, yes, uh, but it's going to be, it's going to happen. It, it's just a matter of who and how people adapt to it. So, um I'm an educator. I've been an educator. Even when I was in business marketing and management, I taught on the side. It's just um, habitual with me. I started uh, in the second grade. Um, I was one of those kids that was um, um, couldn't get enough um, information and uh, pretty hyper. And so they didn't know what to do with me. And um, I was a girl <laughs> because, you know, girl that a girl that loves math, science, uh, you know, biology. I, I was working in eighth grade level in grade two. Um, it was, wow, scary <laughs> back in the day. So they would put me in the corner and have me teach the rest of the kids who were like, you know, struggling <laughs> with English, math or science, you know. And so I got to be the teacher. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it's embedded in my psyche. I can't help it. <laughs> Which is, which is actually pretty, pretty, pretty interesting because uh, I'm not sure if it's a, actually you know, very related to our topic, but to, you, know, you wanted to be a teacher, like you, know, you had this, 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 this drive. And mm-hmm. when you ask kids today, who do you want to be? It's like, I want to be a manager of sales or something like Very rarely you, you can hear kids wanting to be a doctor, like the, the idea of, of a profession. Yeah. Is, is is dying out a little i i, I fear uh, it's, it it relates to to what you said like you know listening to your ego listening to, to growing into into something it's hard to become a better person without this backbone of of, of being someone it's like you you're a cog you just turn left and in the next position you will turn right or mm-hmm. You will, you will just, you know, fill your excels. It's, uh, it's hardly satisfying, I think. I agree. Yeah. I think to your point, um, uh, the vision of young people now, what do you want to be? Um, even if that is what they choose, uh, it's human nature to look for someone who has done it well 
and to emulate it or imitate it. So they're really looking for a teacher. They just don't have the words. So, you know, <laughs> teaching will never go away, by the way. You, you gentlemen teach every day when you talk to uh, your audience and you're informing them and you're facilitating. And so it's a natural process of being a human being is learning from how other people did it well and how you can match that or do it better. Um, so I think that, um, if we, if we appreciate that and kind of move that into a space where it's facilitated and uh, acknowledged consciously, then I think no matter what an individual, individual chooses or dreams of being, um, it, can, it can enhance their own life. So um, I'm not opposed. I mean, because I'm a teacher and I'm an educator at the highest level in my profession, it, it's not the end-all be-all. I know a lot of people that are better dancers <laughs> than <laughs> learners of education. And, you know, it's just whatever um, their individual makeup is. And that's many different things. So um, I, I, we got a little bit off track, but my heart <laughs> goes out to your point is, um, you know, who are people looking up to now? Who are young people looking to for role models and, you know, information and heroes. Absolutely. And I always, always tell my kids that probably the, the job that they will have in, uh, you know, in their adulthood hasn't been invented yet because that the, the world changes so much that we, we, we don't probably have the words yet to describe what, what they will be doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, being a risk guy, I wanted to kind of steer the conversation a bit toward, towards risk, uh, uh, but mm -hmm. not in the, the kind of, because tra traditionally when people talk about modern technology and, and kids and, and educating, they go into, into the risks of, of, uh, of uh, cyber, you know, cyber world and, and all this. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to go into a slightly different direction. And that is the perception of, of risk in, uh, in, in uh, the world and how, how people kind of uh, educating people enables them to better perceive uh, risks in the in the in the operations better perceive the risks in their in in their life uh, in their business uh, and how how do you bring that that critical um, critical thinking mindset because going back to uh, dr nick swain's uh, students and their ability to troubleshoot uh, I think that mm -hmm. that also is an, uh, a derivative of, of risk perception because knowing where the problems are is 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 a kind of uh, you know problem detection and whether you detect them as after they happen and you troubleshoot or whether you have the ability to to, to um, almost think ahead. It is, mm -hmm. These are slightly two different things. Uh, so, do you think there's there's a, a way we can we can steer education in such a way that people build that that critical thinking and, and foresight? Well, there definitely is, and it's not something that um, uh, it, it's something that has to be done age appropriate or education level appropriate. It's not a skill that you can just throw the high level concepts right at every individual and they're going to get it. It's a matter of integration and understanding how to apply themselves to the levels of um, how to mitigate risk once it's been visible or uncovered or how to anticipate potential risk and to uh, measure um, the direction you need to go to avoid um, extemporaneous risk that is going to, you know, destroy your company or whatever. I mean, I don't want to go too far down that bunny hole, but um, it's a process of being able to think so many steps ahead. And Archer, you're exactly right. Um, and that takes a um, an integration of knowledge about a company and its culture and, and your product and uh, your service or um, the world at large. And so that's where you take in a lot of data and then do um, an analysis as to where those risks may lie along the way. So you have to think as many as nine steps ahead, nine steps ahead. And that's not unrealistic to imagine because what decision you make today can affect you nine different times along the pathway till it becomes resolved or improved or whatever. So um, that is a skill. That is a skill you learn in, um, particularly in the levels of research that, you know, I'm 
teaching in that field. So um, mm-hmm. definitely, um, because I'll have someone, they'll come to me with a design question. And the answer at first is, it depends. And <laughs> they're very frustrated with that response, but I'll say, this is why. And so then I'll walk them through the steps ahead. And even though they say, I, I wish someone had told me this earlier. Well, they did, but you weren't prepared to hear it because you didn't know what you didn't know. And therefore, now you can understand why that person explained it to you in that way, because they're already thinking nine, 10 steps ahead. And they're educating you on that process. So um, going through that process, you learn the value of that. And to know what you don't know is often the key, right? So how do you think ahead? And it's an art form. It's a discipline. And it's something you have to teach. It doesn't come natural for a lot of people. (laughs) You have to teach them that brain exercise. And so if you're a company and you want to teach your problem solvers how to go through those steps, um, you have to be ahead of them nine steps, (laughs) (laughs) basically. I I once heard someone say that uh, good risk management teachers are a bit like dentists because when dentists, uh, they they recommend the the better toothpaste, at some point they will will devise a toothpaste that's so good that will no longer need dentists. And, uh, you know, risk risk managers, uh, if, if they are good at what they do and they really can instill this risk management mindset, at some point mm-hmm. you, you, you will not need them anymore because people in the company should be, should be able to themselves think right. critically and prepare the, the, the risk analysis. So, you mm-hmm. know, at, at maybe, maybe I'm kind of teaching myself out of a job, but, <laughs> you know, I, I for for me, it would be an ideal world where if, if people did have that that critical faculty that allowed them to to plan nine steps ahead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> and it takes time; you can't do it in in a day. <laughs> Speaking of time, Speaking of time, there? I th- I think we it's all uh, we have time for. And as we always say, let's hope it was of use to someone. Thank you for listening. For a slightly different take on knowledge transfer, check out the podcast Speaking of Reliability, where Carl and Fred discuss good knowledge transfer in their July 22 episode. As usual, all links to the references will be available in the notes to this episode. Also, don't miss the next one, where we'll be discussing agile methodologies, their supposed universality and some actual limitations. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit bdr.show to find out more about the future episodes and guests. You can also check out cognition.llc for more information on Cognition Shared Solutions, our services and other events hosted by us. For now, it's thank you from myself, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak and my co-host, Artur Buja. Thank you very much.